We are now uh, two weeks into a four-week series through the Old Testament book of Exodus. And as you know, Christ is found in all of the scriptures, in the entire Old Covenant, whether you're talking about the law books or you're talking about the history books or the prophetic books, poetry, wisdom, it is all pointing to Christ. He is revealed as such in the Gospels. He is proclaimed as such in the book of Acts. He is explained with detail and theological nuance throughout all of the epistles, and then you get to the book of Revelation, and His second coming is anticipated. He is not only the hero of the story of the Scriptures, He is the story of the Scriptures. And so that's why we wanted to go back and spend a little bit of time in one of these Torah books, in one of these Old Covenant books, for the purpose of seeing how in everything Christ is preeminent. It's going to be very difficult for us to understand in, in detail the true nature of the law, especially as it relates to New Covenant believers, without going back into the Old Covenant to understand what God intended when He first delivered it. Four messages, four words describe each section. The first section was deliverance. We covered that last week. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about redemption. And next week, covenant. And in the final week, presence. Deliverance, redemption, covenant, presence. The title of this uh, series is Serve Yahweh. And that's because when you serve anything or anyone other than Yahweh, whether it's a, uh, another world religion or whether it's no religion at all or whether it's yourself, you're actually enslaved. You're actually in bondage. And you're in bondage to a worldview that has put itself up against the revelation of the one true living God. You're in bondage to your own impressions. You're in bondage to your own emotions. You're in bondage to your own limited view of uh, the world and history. Uh, in fact, you're in bondage to your sin. And one of the things that we saw in the book of Exodus is that deliverance is deliverance in a physical sense from the bondage of Egypt, but it is also looking forward in a spiritual sense to the deliverance that God brings to His people out of the bondage of sin and death and hell. Because under Adam, our federal representative, we are now all doomed. We are all sinners. We are born sinners. That's why we sin. And we are born with the very judgment of God hanging over our head, taking every breath in this life in the crosshairs of His wrath, unless there is someone who steps in to mediate, someone who steps in to substitute. And by the grace and to the glory of God, that's what happened when Jesus Christ was sent but even Jesus himself, as we'll see in a little bit here, says that before I was sent, that there were many images, pictures, shadows of what was to come. And those are precisely what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at redemption. And we're going to look at the way that God actually executes redemption, the way that he does redemption in the Old Covenant text in Exodus chapter 12 through 18. Now, we're going to look at that this morning, three particular points for you under this heading of an argument that Yahweh redeems. And He redeems in these three ways, by a substitute, as a warrior, and through a mediator. He redeems by a substitute, as a warrior, and through a mediator. We are going to scan these chapters. We're going to read a good portion of them, but time will not permit us to go through every word of this. So please, on your own, go back, read it with these truths in mind, and I believe that you'll be most encouraged in your faith. First of all, we have to go back to chapter 12. Chapter 12 serves as kind of the overlapping seam between deliverance and redemption, because to be delivered requires redemption, and to be redeemed brings deliverance. And we go back into chapter 12, and you may recall that chapter 12 was where Yahweh reveals that the process by which He was going to take His people out of the bondage of Egypt was through this event called the Passover. And on a particular day, on a particular month, 
about April in our time of year, the people were to go and they were to take one lamb or a goat, one year old, a male without any blemish. It had to be a perfect animal. And depending on the size of the household, uh, they were to take one of these animals and they were to bring it into their home, into their dwelling, into the compound that people lived in in those days. And after several days, they were to sacrifice that animal. Uh, they were to do as was done in that day, brace the animal from behind, putting your hand underneath its jaw, pulling its head back as far as you can, taking a knife and slicing it along one of the major arteries in the throat. At that point, blood would not trickle out, it would spurt out from the animal, and somebody would be there to collect that blood in a basin. And as that blood filled the basin, it would be taken over to the side, and somebody would take a branch of hyssop, which was a plant that grew in the area, they would dip it in there, and they would sprinkle that on the doorposts of the home. Homes in those days were like fortified compounds. They didn't have windows on the outside. You weren't concerned about your view. You were concerned about safety. <laughs> and so all of your openings opened inward. But you did have one opening right in the very front. That was the main door. And it was blocked off by a gate, and it was held up with a cross piece on the top and two side pieces holding it. And somebody would go out and they would sprinkle the blood on that doorpost. And I know that perhaps the illustration has been said to you so many times, it's become a bit easy to just let it go over your head. But just for a moment, listen again. Because what rescued the firstborn in that home that night was not the extent of the faith of the person who sprinkled the blood. It was the object of the faith. And by that, we mean to say that if you were hearing that word, that this was the way to redeem your firstborn, if you went out there and you were absolutely convinced that Yahweh was going to do this, you've seen the nine other plagues, you are sure that He is the only one true God. He has defeated the Egyptians, and you go out there, carried along with this massive faith, and you take the hyssop, and you gratefully dip that in the blood, and you don't just sprinkle your doorpost, man, you paint it. You're like, this is going to be the greatest deliverance we've ever seen. And your neighbor, who thinks you're a little bit of a fanatic, gets his family together and says, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem to make much sense to me. I mean, that was a perfectly good lamb. I mean, we could have done a lot more with that if we'd waited for a few more years. It was really fattening up. I mean, that was a good lamb. I had a lot of hope for that lamb. Here it is, slaughtered at one year. All right, bring me some hyssop. Bring me the blood. I'm going to go out and do this. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work. Seems kind of weird to me. But I'm just going to do it because, I don't know, Charlie's doing it, and you know him. He's going to look down on me and make fun of me if I don't and call me a lousy Israelite. So I sprinkle the blood on the doorposts and a little bit on the top and a little on the side, and then I go in and I go to sleep and say, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Which of those two people experienced deliverance. Both. It was about trusting God. It was about do what I ask. And that's the very central idea in substitution. The substitute the substitute is given so that the one who was to be the object of wrath can be delivered. And what it means when you deliver somebody by a substitute, it's called redemption. And that's why it's such a critical aspect of this text. That's why it's so important. That's why that word redemption is a word you've got to just deeply pound into the recesses of your mind. It, it, it's the word that is written large across all of the Scriptures we serve a God of redemption, a redeeming God, a God who purchases back with a substitute something that is precious to Him. And that is the entire purpose of chapter 12, to, to lay that out for us, to show us that it is God who strikes the firstborn. It was the firstborn in that culture that would die for the sins of the rest of the family. In a patriarchal society, in a patrilineal society, in a patrilocal society, all those words that begin with patra, it means father. It's the father's house. 
The father had a house. He had a household. And usually what happens is your daughters, when they got married, would go and join the household of her husband. And your sons, when they got married, would bring their, their wives into your household. You would add on rooms to the family compound. And the oldest living male was responsible for that family. And if that family had done something uh, that had caused it to fall into to a bad reputation or they had done something that was going to cost them a life, it was not uncommon, even before Moses' day, to put the older son up there, the oldest son, the one that was going to carry on your name and sacrifice him for the family. That's why it wasn't odd, I don't think, for Abraham to take Isaac to sacrifice him. You don't see him contending with God, questioning God. Even long before Moses, that was the way things were done. Now, had he told him to go in and take Sarah and sacrifice her, well, then he would have known something was wrong. But to take a firstborn son and to sacrifice it for the whole family was not unusual. What is unusual is that when that firstborn son was going to be sacrificed, but a substitute is given, a redemption occurs. And so what you have here is a, a redemption event that's going to cause a lot of questions, a lot of questions. Because God was very clear. He said, you need to tell your son when he asks you every year about this um, ritual you do, this Passover ritual, he's going to ask you why, and you need to be prepared to explain to him why. And here's how this works. Every year when the Passover time came, they would take that lamb and they would sacrifice the lamb. Not just out of tradition, but out of that annual redemption event that firstborn son is alive today because of the death of the lamb. And so that son, as he grew up, year after year after year, he would see this happening. He doesn't understand when he's one or two or three or four, but maybe five, six, seven. He starts to ask, hey, Dad, why are we doing this every year? And, and, and wouldn't this put something, wouldn't this, um, wouldn't this stick in your mind if you were a child? If, if, if when you take that lamb and you bring the family together and you slit its throat and the blood pours out of it and you don't carve it up the way you normally do, you don't butcher it, you don't want to break any of its limbs, you roast it whole and the family eats it together, dressed up like they're ready to run, and the son asks you, why do we do this every year? And you look at him and you say, we kill this lamb every year so that I don't have to kill you. You see, the sacrificial lamb wasn't just part of an annual tradition. The sacrificial lamb was the annual reminder that the angel of death passed over that house because a substitute was given so that the firstborn didn't have to be killed. And that's why chapter 12 is such an important overlap with chapter 13, because in that next chapter, the Lord begins to explain to the people of Israel why this is so important. He says in chapter 13 at the beginning, you can look down and see this. The Lord says to Moses, consecrate for me all the firstborn. Now this goes beyond just the son. This goes to all of the animals as well. Remember the Passover angel, when it came, the Passover angel, the angel of death, killed not only the firstborn sons in all the households without the blood on the doorpost, but also the animals. And so... God says to Moses, this is going to be part of the ongoing remembrance. Every time your animal, every time your farm animal has a calf, you need to redeem it. You need to kill it. You need to sacrifice it. The firstborn of the lambs, kill it. The firstborn of the goats, kill it. The firstborn of the donkeys, it says, you can break the donkey's neck, or you can kill a lamb in its place. But that lamb, that goat, that animal was either killed or there was a lamb substitute killed on its behalf. Now, just for a moment, think about this logically, contextually. You're out there in the wilderness. You've got your animals that you took with you out into, from Egypt. And uh, maybe, for example, a donkey is born, and, and you would really rather keep the donkey. Uh, there's not a lot of donkeys right now, and donkeys are really important. I was listening to a radio program uh, just this week, and it's fascinating. They were talking about this earthquake in Morocco and how there are people who live way up in the mountains, and because of the nature of the earthquake, the roads are probably going to be impassable. And, and the person, the journalist, said this. They said, because of the rugged terrain and how far away the people are, they're going to have to rescue them with either helicopters or donkeys. Donkeys. 
You know, donkeys were like the ancient helicopters. Donkeys, they couldn't fly. I know it's in your mind right now. Donkeys were amazing creatures. I mean, they could go where almost no other animal could go. You'll notice even the imagery of that. Remember when Moses comes back, he has his family on a donkey, or he moves Jesus and his family. Joseph takes them into Egypt on a donkey. Mary comes down pregnant on a donkey. It's sort of this theme that runs through so many of the narratives, but you might want to keep it, and so if you wanted to keep it, you would have to sacrifice another animal, and that's where the lamb comes in again. The lamb is always the one who is sacrificed. The lamb is always the one uh, who ends up having to shed its blood, and not only for its own animals, but also for the other farm animals, the poor lambs. But yet that's exactly how this is meant to be communicated. It's a sacrifice. It's a substitute. Notice here that it was, again, the firstborn animal or the firstborn in the household that was killed. Each and every one of them had to be redeemed. Yahweh redeems, and he redeems by a substitute. Secondly, he is also a warrior. This is another way in which he redeems. Uh, This is going to pick up for us in Exodus 13, beginning in verse 17. Notice this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. What a compassionate God. You know, We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he is never going to allow us to be tempted by anything more than we could handle, and he won't even allow his own people, the Israelites, to be tempted to fear and run back to Egypt when they see the Philistine armies. He leads them down a certain way because as a people, they had just come out from slavery, and their fighting force wasn't ready, and their soldiers weren't trained. They weren't able to fight well. In fact, you know, when you're a prisoner, when you're uh, people in bondage, when you're slaves, the last thing that your owner, the last thing that the person controlling you wants is for you to rise, uh, raise up a, a strong army on your own. So everything would have been done to make sure they were not a very good army. And God is going to have them battle later on, but for now, he says, as we bring you down, I'm not going to take you by the standing army of the Philistines. I don't want you to be terrified and run back. So who's going to fight for them? I mean, here they are, 600,000 men, maybe 2 million people strong. Who's going to defend them? Who's going to cover the weaker and slower people at the back? I mean, who's going to protect a group that large from being attacked from any side? If you don't even have a good enough army to where you can protect yourself, then what do you possibly think is going to happen when you're out in the wilderness where there's no food, no water, no protection, no shelter, and no, prote- and no army? The answer is that because Yahweh is a redeeming God, we also realize that he redeems as a warrior. God fights for them. God fights for them. So here's what happens. Uh, they move down south, and what happens is all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a change of heart, and he starts pursuing them. And he grabs 600 of his best chariots and best chariot riders, and the text says, and all his other chariots. In the old days, the chariot, that was the epitome of military technology. That was the best. If you had chariots and horses, you were unstoppable. Why in Deuteronomy 17, 17, will Moses say that future kings of Israel are not allowed to acquire to themselves horses from Egypt? It's because if you did, if you had a horse and a chariot from Egypt, you would assume that you were completely beyond the scope of any other military to take you out. That, 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 that you, were, you, were, you, were, you were so safe that, that no one could stop you. If you had chariots and horses from Egypt, that was it. I mean, you had the most technologically advanced army in the world. And here it is. And it's on the move. And it's going after a people with nothing. No weapons, no standing army, no protection, no water, no food, no shelter. This will be easy. All Pharaoh's got to do is get on his chariots and get his men together and head down and turn them around maybe slaughter a few thousand of them to make sure that they know he's serious, and then move them straight back into Egypt. And so they come down, and the people are rightfully terrified. But this is where we get introduced to another presence of the Lord, and that is through the pillars, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. You see, he directs them by that. We'll see later on that Christ says, I was the one in that pillar. I was the one in the fire, in the cloud. 
And he leads the people down. And what's so fascinating is he brings them actually to what in our mind would be the worst possible place. He brings them right down into the lower portion of the peninsula where they are right beside the sea. And on the other side is a Hebrew word for watchtower. And it's like he takes all of these people, two million of them, and he puts them right down deliberately in this narrow corridor between the Red Sea on one side and the very military outpost lookouts of the Egyptians on the other. I mean, they are right under the watchful eye of the Egyptians. And then what does God do? He puts himself between them and the Egyptians. He puts himself in the pillar of fire between the two. And right when the Egyptian army is thinking to themselves, this, <laughs> this is so good. I mean, this couldn't be easier. Moses, man, apparently he was not paying attention in military training when he was here. Apparently, Moses, all those years growing up in Pharaoh's household, did not take very good notes when it came to the military training he received. He has literally brought this entire group of slaves right into this narrow pocket where we're going to be able to pick them off so easily. I mean, this is a joke. And so Pharaoh's excited, the military's excited, all the chariots are lined up, but God has a plan. And he positions himself right between the two. And then he says to Moses, turn around, and I want you to stretch your hand out there over the waters of the Red Sea with your staff. And, and just by the way, if you like geography, if you look at that, this would have been obviously one of the canals that runs off the Red Sea right there by the lower part of modern-day Saudi Arabia, where Mount Sinai is. And so he says, stretch out your hand, stretch out your staff, and I'm going to use you to redeem the people. But I'm going to do the fighting for you. And so he does exactly that. And what happens? All night long, there is this strong wind, a ruach. It's the word used for spirit. It is the spirit of God moves upon this water, moves upon this hindrance that would seem to be a hopeless barrier. And what does he do? He separates it so that there are massive towering walls of water and he is, he is there, the pillar of fire. On the other side are the Egyptians. They can't see what's going on. The waters part. The land becomes dry. There's all this debate, where exactly was this? And some people say it was here. Some say it was there. Some people argue it had to be in this one spot because there's a natural land bridge underneath. Listen, everybody. God doesn't need a natural land bridge when he does a supernatural parting of the sea. I mean, it's not like he says, well, i got to figure out how to separate the sea at a place where there's a natural land bridge. Now, during creation, where did I put that? <laughs> he just made dry land. I don't know. Maybe it was a land bridge. Maybe it was, and it doesn't matter. He opens this up, and all they know, looking at it from their side, the Egyptians, is that this pillar of fire suddenly steps aside, and uh-oh, the people they thought they were going to be able to pick off easily have already made their way across. And they're well across by the time dawn breaks. But that's not to worry because they're just a bunch of people on foot. we got chariots. Pharaoh says, go. And they start hurling in to this corridor. And you can just imagine it. The people are three-quarters of the way through. All of a sudden, the sun comes up. They look back, and what's happening? All of the dust cloud from the dry ground behind the chariots as this massive army comes chasing after them. It's got all the power. It's hurtling after them. And they don't even have anywhere to scatter. You can't go back into the army. You can't go left. You can't go right. You can only go one direction, and that's forward. And so they start moving. And Moses brings them out. Come on, come on, come on. The army's getting closer and closer. And then what happens? The Lord says, put up your hand again. And the waters begin to close in. And I think that if you look at the narrative, the way it's explained is the waters begin to close in at the far end. It all starts collapsing in. And it says that the Egyptian army was terrified. They turn around and they try to get back out. They realize they can't make it to the other side, but they can't get back out because that's already collapsing. The dream is collapsing. And everything is flowing in on top of them. And now here they are, halfway, three-quarters of the way through. It doesn't matter. You can't outrun a wall of water when it's falling down upon you as the wrath of God. And so the massive weight of that water, the massive weight of that 
wrath of God comes crashing down upon them, and every single horse and rider are destroyed. And the children of Israel stand on the shore on the other side, and they're looking at this still sea with the entire Egyptian army dead underneath it. That's not because Moses is a great leader. That's not because they're good warriors. That's because God is a warrior. If you do any studying in theology, especially of God in the Old Covenant, there is a motif called the divine warrior motif. And you can study this through all of Scripture. It's a fascinating study. God, the one who fights for you, the strong arm of the Lord, He is the one who makes up for the people's inexperience. It is His strong hand in chapter 13, 9, and 14, and 16, and chapter 14, 13, and 14, and 25. It is His strong arm. Salvation comes from Him. 14, 13, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of Yahweh, which He will work for you today. He does it for you. You rest. Now, what does this lead to? Very simply, the Song of Moses, verse, chapter 15. Moses responds by, by writing a hymn. Chapter 15, verse 3, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is His name. Verse 6, your right hand, Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, Yahweh, shatters the enemy. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Why? Because in verse 16, we have been purchased. God is a warrior. Miriam, Moses' sister, was a prophetess. Remember, Miriam was the one who looked after Moses when his mom, Jochebed, put him in the Nile in the basket, another word for ark. She is the one who Pharaoh's daughter sent to go and find someone to nurse the child. Aaron, his brother, was a few years older than him, obviously able to live. The genocide from Pharaoh hadn't happened yet where they were killing off all the firstborn sons. And so Moses is out in the wilderness with his immediate family. And Miriam, who was a prophetess used by God to do the work of an old covenant prophet, she picks up her tambourine and she reiterates chapter 15, verse 1, the opening part of the song. And she brings the women out together, and the women repeat the beginning of that song, no doubt playing the rest of it and teaching the people the song. This is very common. We see that, remember, when we hear about the songs that the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. It's very common for the women to come out with their instruments and to sing and to, to lead the people in song, talking about the glorious deeds of the mighty warrior that is their God. Now, there's one more example of this, where God is a warrior for His people, and we're going to jump over to chapter 17, verse 15 for a moment. Just very briefly, there is another war a little bit later on. The descendants of Esau, the Amalekites, start to pick off the people at the, the back end of the caravan, and so Moses goes to Joshua, and he says, I want you to take some of the fighting men, and I want you to do battle against the Amalekites. And what we see here in chapter 17, 15 to 16, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Yahweh is my banner. The banner was another word for a staff. It was what you would hold up. Uh, it was the sign that you were the one who was in charge. Later on, it's why the kings would hold up their sword the Roman Empire had a staff with an eagle on top of it so you could tell which one was which. There were so many at some point, then they began to hang pieces of cloth on it. They were called banners. That's where today we have a flag, sometimes with an eagle on top. It all came from the Roman Empire. I bring that up here because it was a sign of, of military advancement. God was their warrior. So God, the great Redeemer, Yahweh, the one who brings redemption by a substitute, sacrificial lamb, as a warrior, as the one who fights for them, and then thirdly, through a mediator. Let's go back and pick it up at chapter 15 and verse 22. After the song has been sung of Moses and Miriam's song, the people get on the road again. 
And this is so amazing. After all that God has done, we have the ten plagues, we have the deliverance of the firstborn, we have the pillaging of the Egyptians, we have the crossing of the Red Sea. After all of this that God has done for them, the people begin walking from the place where the Red Sea came in and destroyed the Egyptian army, and before too long, they start to get hungry and thirsty, and they turn their complaint to Moses. And one of the things I want you to see is that throughout this whole section, it is Moses who is the one that receives their grumbling. Just by way of overview, let me remind you of this. In Exodus chapter 15, 24, chapter 16, verse 8, 16, 28, 17, 3, 17, 11, over and over again, it's the people grumbling against Moses. They grumble against him, they grumble against him and Aaron. He is, in effect, becoming their mediator. And they're grumbling to him because he is doing something on behalf of Yahweh. And what's so interesting is that when God finally gets tired of their grumblings, he turns on Moses and he says, why are you grumbling? Even at that point, he stands in as this mediator for the people. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Moses, I'd be pretty tired at this point. These, nothing's worse than grumbling people, okay? You've been in a context where someone's grumbling, and it's just so irritating after a while. And Moses is done with it. I mean, at one point, he gets before God, and he's like, look, I don't know, kill me or kill them. Kill one of us. Like, I haven't reached that point of frustration yet, at least not with any of you who are in the room at this moment. I mean, he was tired of it. And he finally goes before the Lord, and the Lord says to him, why are you grumbling against me? And maybe if you were Moses, you'd be tempted to go, with all due respect, I'm not the one grumbling. But you see, because he was representing the people to God and God to the people, he was the mediator. We had a great conversation about this today in our staff, uh, this week in our staff meeting, and, uh, and, and Dave brought up this really, really good point. He said that normally when you think about a mediator, you think about a neutral third party. If you go to arbitration today to avoid going to court, if you hire a mediator, you want that person to be neutral. It's kind of like uh, step two in Matthew 18 when you bring a witness in. I don't want a partial witness. I want somebody who's going to hear both sides and, and, and make a decision. A mediator in Scripture, in this case, is actually the opposite of that. That is somebody who represents, but they represent both sides. Moses represents the people to God and God to the people. You see, the people will be so terrified of God in a few moments here, we'll get into this next week, that they don't even want to go up on the mountain to hear from God. They're terrified. They say, Moses, you go for us. You go be our mediator. Likewise, God is not going to bear with the people, he says, so he sends Moses to be the mediator for the people. Mediation is one of the key ways in which God interacts throughout all of redemptive history. In all of his redemption, there is this mediator. And so we see it in Moses, and we'll pick up the story here in chapter 15, where Moses brings them water. He brings them water by being a mediator between them and God. They get to the place, Mara, where the water is bitter, and God says, go take that log or tree in the Hebrew and throw it in, and then the water becomes sweet. And he says to the people, I have brought you to this place of bitterness to deliver you from bitterness, to remind you that I am the God who brings healing, and I will always heal you, and I will not bring upon you the plagues of the Egyptians. Through their mediator, God is revealed as not only deliverer, but also healer. Beyond that, we see in chapter 16, the famous account of the bread from heaven. And, and I don't know why in my English translation the heading just says bread from heaven because it's also quail. It's meat and bread from heaven. I mean, you're missing the best part. It was meat in the evening and bread in the morning. Remember, the quail came out in the evening and the people could collect those and the bread came out in the morning. It landed like dew, like frost on the ground. They picked it up and it was sweet like honey and they called it manna. They're complaining to Moses because God brought them out into the wilderness, they said, to die. They start using really sarcastic language. They say things like, what, there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Man, if I was Moses, like wouldn't you just want to, well, anyway, they're being all sarcastic, giving you an attitude, whining, complaining, grumbling all the time, 
saying, well, there weren't enough you know, graves in Egypt. You're bringing us out here to the desert to die. And so what does Moses do? He goes before the Lord. He says, I don't know what to do. We need to feed these people. They keep complaining. And God, in his kind, gracious benevolence, delivers them, redeems them from death with the quail and with the manna. And we see that in chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And see what it says there in verse 29. See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of this place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. What is all this pointing to? It's all pointing to the fact that uh, even early on before the giving of the law officially in Exodus 20, which we'll get to very shortly next week, God says, I want you to go out there every day. You're going to collect enough bread for that day. If you try to keep enough for tomorrow, you're going to get up in the morning. It's going to be full of maggots and stink. And of course, it's amazing when you read the narrative, and the people disobeyed, and the people disobeyed, and the people disobeyed. You know, grumbling on one side, disobeying on the other. I mean, it was nothing but difficulty for this poor leader. But anyway, he says to them, when you come out there on the sixth day, go ahead and you can gather up twice as much because it will keep on that day. And so they do, they gather twice as much. Why? Because God was sending them a message that one out of these seven days would be a day set aside for Sabbath rest. Now we can talk a lot about the Sabbath, and we will in the future, but let me just give you this little preview. This is something I had to learn. I, didn't, I did not, I, well, okay, doesn't matter what I do, but since I've started that sentence, I'll finish it. Um, like, I don't Sabbath well. I don't Sabbath well. I don't vacation well. I get antsy. I, 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 I don't know. It's just, I, 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 like, I like to work. But I also, for a long time, would not allow myself to rest if I hadn't met my goals for that week, if I hadn't done enough, if I hadn't, if I hadn't reached a certain amount of productivity. And the, the, the hard lesson I had to learn, the lesson that the Lord really revealed to me and rebuked me with, was, was when I first began to understand that Sabbath is not a reward. You don't get a day off because you did the right number of reps. You get a day off because God demands that you take a day off. You don't look back and say, I did enough work, therefore I've earned my rest. He says, I'm giving you rest. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? He doesn't say, you've done enough, so therefore I'll give you this. He says, I've done it for you. I just want you to receive it. I want you to rest. It's so amazing how earlier he says to the people, I'm going to fight for you. You need only be silent. Watch. So he says to them, I'm going to give you this rest. I'm going to work through a mediator. I'm going to provide for you. And it wasn't only the sweet water and the meat and the bread and the Sabbath rest, but notice it was even water from the rock. Chapter 17 and verse 6. He says to the people there, after they are facing imminent death because of lack of water, he says, behold, and this is always meant to get your attention, by the way, as you're reading your English version, I will stand before you there, speaking to Moses on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did that. Did it in the sight of the people, did it in the sight of the elders. He took that staff in his hand, it's called a banner or a standard. And he took that and he struck the rock as he was commanded to do. And out of that rock came water. The people could drink because of Moses. They could eat because of Moses. They were healed because of Moses. Not because Moses had the power himself, but because Moses was the mediator of a redeeming God. There's one more mediator, and I would draw your attention to chapter 18. And that is Jethro. Jethro, you remember, was Moses' father-in-law. And so you'll see in uh, verse 2 of chapter 18, now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. Back to what we said earlier about the father's household. My father's house. The father's house was the house of the patriarch. The patriarch was responsible to be a redeemer of his household. This is why Abraham goes to rescue Lot. This is why Boaz redeems Ruth. And we can go on and on about that. We do not have time for that this morning. But throughout all of Scripture, you see redemption and the Redeemer as a theme. But when Moses goes back to Egypt to lead the people out, he sends his family home. 
So Zipporah and his two adult sons are now living back with Jethro in Midian. Moses takes the people from Egypt across the Red Sea and into the area close to where Jethro lives. And so Jethro comes down. They commute down to see what's going on. They've spent the whole time out in Midian hearing about this from afar. And so out of nowhere shows up Jethro and Zipporah and his kids. And they begin to talk. It's an amazing account. I kind of think we imagine Moses kind of with his family doing this together, like sort of a family ministry. It's like, no, he got sent by God in there. He sent his wife and his children to a place that was safe. Aaron and his family were in Egypt. Miriam and her family were in Egypt, but Moses didn't bring his family. So Jethro brings his family down. They get together. They get reacquainted, and Jethro wants to know what's going on. And so Moses tells him everything that God has been doing, and and Jethro is amazed. And so what he does in chapter 18, verses 10 to 12, is that he offers a sacrifice. He is, remember, the priest of Midian. Now, it's a little bit unclear exactly what Jethro was, but I'm okay at this moment with the interpretation that he was probably a priest a lot like Melchizedek, the priest of Salem. Remember him from Hebrews? He, he was a priest to God before the formal, civil, ceremonial law of God was given at Mount Sinai. The same way that Job offered sacrifice and uh, Abraham and Noah, actually, pretty much everybody else, up until the time that the law was given in Mount Sinai. And so I think he's functioning that way because you'll notice here in chapter 18, verses 10 to 12, Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Why is that an act of mediation? Because before Aaron was set aside and the Levites were set aside as the priests for the people of Israel, Jethro came and Aaron and all of his brothers came and allowed Jethro to be the priest on behalf of the people. He offered the sacrifices. They joined him and they ate bread together with him. And there's one other way in which he mediates, not only with worship, but secondly, with wisdom. He brings wisdom to Moses, and this is a very simple explanation, but he says to Moses, you know, I've been watching you, and you are up from early morning to late at night judging the people. Not, not judging, condemning, but rendering judgments for the people. And he says, this is going to burn you out. So what you need to do is set up a structure where you've got some people you're delegating this to, teach them what God has said, let them do the, the judging, and only the really hard cases... Those can come to you, and you can go to the Lord, and the Lord will give you an answer. And so Jethro, in a sense, intervenes. Jethro, in a sense, becomes a mediator, even in that regard, to give Moses some of the break that he needs. Remember, at this point, Moses is 80 years old, so Moses is probably, at this point, ready for a little bit of a break. So this is the answer. This is the answer. People ask the question, well, how does God interact with his people in the Old Covenant? He interacts with them as a redeemer, as the one who redeems by substitute the one who redeems as a warrior, and the one who redeems through a mediator. However, if we don't see Christ in this, then we've missed the point. If we don't see Christ in every study of the Old Covenant, if we don't see Christ in every message of the Old Testament, if we just become really well acquainted with the Old Covenant, then we might as well just go down the street to the nearest synagogue and sit there and listen to their teaching, because there's really no difference. The only thing we concern ourselves with when we pick up the Old Covenant is how does this direct me to Christ? What type of Christ is here? What shadow of Christ is here? I'm going to give you a few examples. We see the true Redeemer, first of all, in the Lamb. You see, we see this in chapter 12, 26 to 27, but you also know that it is John in John 1, 29, John the Baptist, who says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. One of my favorite examples is in Mark chapter 15, verse 20. As Jesus leads the people out, he says that he is, or I'm sorry, as he is being led out to be crucified, that he is being led out. The word is exodus, his exodus to crucifixion. He is in the lamb. He is in the firstborn. 
In chapter 13, 15, the firstborn is talked about in Exodus, and we see in Colossians 1, 18 that Christ says, I am the firstborn of all creation. Now, don't believe what the cults tell you and that that is a proof text that somehow Jesus was created by God. What he's saying by saying the firstborn, not firstborn chronologically, firstborn in preeminence. It was the firstborn in that culture that received a double inheritance because that firstborn son was going to be the future patriarch. He was going to be the one responsible for the family going forward. Jesus says, I am the firstborn, Colossians 1, 18. He is the angel of Yahweh. John chapter 8, verse 18 says, I am the light of the world. He says, I was sent In John chapter 8, the context is the Feast of Booths, which is also about him. But he says, I have been sent into this world. I am the light of the world. In the context, he talks about the pillar and the cloud and the leading in the wilderness. And Jesus says, that was me, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, the sent one of the Lord. It's not always an ancient pre-incarnate vision of Jesus, but in many cases it was. He is also the bread. Exodus 16, 4. Compare that with John 6, 31 and 32. He says, Moses gave you bread from heaven, but Christ says, I am the true bread from heaven. He calls himself the life of the world. He is the water. Exodus 17, 6. We see in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 6, that Jesus is the one who was the spiritual food, spiritual drink, spiritual rock. And Paul says, that rock was Christ. It couldn't get any clearer than that. And that all of this stood as an example for us, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. And finally, he is the banner, he is the standard. Now, that's what is raised up during the battle with the Amalekites. We just briefly touched on it, so let me return to it for a moment. Remember, Moses says, I'm going to go up on the hill, and I'm going to pray. And as I hold up my arms, and I hold up the staff, the rod, the banner, the standard, all those words are the same in the Hebrew, the battle went for the children of Israel. But the minute he put them down, the battle began to go for the enemy. And so as you remember in the story, they bring a rock for him to sit on, and then they come alongside him and they hold up his arms, and he holds up that staff until the battle is won. Well, in the same way, Numbers 21, 8 and 9 says that it is that same type of standard that is raised up in the wilderness when the people are dying of serpent bites, and if you just look upon it, you will be redeemed. You'll be delivered. John 3. We all know John 3.16. Unfortunately, we seem to ignore John 3 on either side of that. It's part of a longer discussion with Nicodemus, an Old Testament scholar, and Jesus says in John 3.13-15, the serpent that was raised up in the wilderness, that's me. And if I am lifted up, I will draw people to myself for redemption. Revelation 3.21, it is Christ who sits enthroned. You see, Solomon, when he stood before the people with his arms raised in 1 Kings 8, 56, he says, all of the promises that God has made to you have been fulfilled. And then in Luke 24, 50, it says that Jesus leads the people out, his disciples out. It's the word exodus again. He gives them an exodus out before his ascension where he raises up his hands and like the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, ascends to be the mediator. Jesus says, I am that banner. I am that standard. Arms raised high, banner waving. The one who before the very throne of God lives to make intercession for you. He is the lamb. He is the firstborn. He is the angel of Yahweh. He is the bread. He is the water. He is the banner. He, from before the foundation of the world, along with the Father, living out and executing the eternal covenant of redemption, to bring to himself and into his father's household all of those who were chosen and elect and their names written in the book of life before they were ever born. That is why he says in my father's house there are many rooms. I'm sorry to shatter your 1950s Baptist hymnal, but there's no mansion in heaven. You're not getting a mansion. It's got nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about there. He's talking about that 
ancient household where they're adding on rooms for everybody. My father's home, my father's compound. There are many rooms, and I'm going to make one ready for you. That's what he's talking about. It was always him. It was always them. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, puts it this way, and there's no better way to sum this up than with these words. We must not then speak of God punishing Jesus or of Jesus persuading God, for to do so is to set them over against each other as if they acted independently of each other or were even in conflict with each other. We must never make Christ the object of God's punishment or God the object of Christ's persuasion. For both God and Christ were subjects, not objects, taking the initiative together to save sinners. Whatever happened on the cross in terms of God-forsakenness was voluntarily accepted by both in the same holy love which made atonement necessary. It was God in our nature forsaken of God. If the Father gave the Son and the Son gave Himself, if the Gethsemane cup symbolized the wrath of God, it was nevertheless given by the Father and voluntarily taken by the Son. If the Father sent the Son, the Son came Himself. The Father did not lay on the Son an ordeal He was reluctant to bear, nor did the Son extract from the Father a salvation He was reluctant to bestow. There is no suspicion anywhere in the New Testament of discord between the Father and the Son whether by the Son wrestling forgiveness from the unwilling Father or by the Father demanding a sacrifice from an unwilling Son. There was no unwillingness in either. On the contrary, their wills coincided in perfect self-sacrifice of love. Amen? Father, thank You for this majestic Word May we do whatever we possibly can in our efforts by Your grace to do the slightest justice to the magnificence of what You've revealed to us here as our Redeemer. Allow us to go from this place once again overwhelmed by the reality of Christ, the true and better Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Israel. He is everything that your holy scriptures were pointing to and everything we look back on in worship. And can it be? that I should gain an interest, a portion, a benefit from the Savior's blood. Died He for me who caused His pain. For me, who Him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, wouldst die for me?